Anyone who knows me knows how much I love music. And it's all the more important when I'm driving. If I'm driving more often than not, I'm going to have the radio on in my car. If I'm on a trip, first thing I do is start scanning to fill in the presets. Some cities have better stations than others. But as I've gotten older, I've expanded my taste to all sorts of things. On any given, at any given moment, you can find me listening to rock, to pop, Latin, country, classical. And you may very well find me listening to any one of those in various scenarios. Because certain music just feels right in certain places. You know, classical feels very appropriate when I'm reading. It's good background music. I found that country music actually sounds better in the country. I think so. I like it anyway, but... But in different places, different activities, different songs, different music just feels right. As, as we start the new year, I thought we'd spend some time in the Bible songbook. The book of Psalms. And the book's name in Hebrew literally translates to praises, but... While that's a big part of the book, this book is filled with songs that serve as poetic prayers, and they cover all sorts of seasons, all sorts of emotions, and they were used in various contexts in the life of Israel's worship, both private and corporate settings, and some of them give us clues as to how they were used or where they may have been used. Some of them are attributed to certain characters, most notably King David, who has more attributed to him than anyone. But ultimately, we're not completely certain as to the context. Fortunately, that doesn't usually change the meaning of any of the Psalms too much anyway. But regardless, in it, we have a book full of prayers that testify to us about who God is, what God does. Many of them address God directly, if not completely at some point. And so they give us vibrant models as to how to relate to the God we serve. And there are a lot of different categories and subcategories, but we're only going to go through a sample, lest we dive into a three-year series. And we'll explore some key themes that I think are important for us to recognize in our spiritual journeys. This will by no means be exhaustive, not even thematically. But whatever your experience with the book of Psalms, whether you're in it every day or it's been a while, I encourage you to take a fresh look at them. Maybe feel free to add some of them to your playlist, so to speak. Make them your own prayers. And today we're going to look at Psalm 23 attributed or associated with David, which is highly appropriate because he was a shepherd who became king, and so it would make sense to think about him thinking of God in this way. If you've ever heard a psalm before in your life, there's a good chance you've heard Psalm 23. It's like the amazing grace of the psalm book, or rather, amazing grace is probably the Psalm 23 of the hymnal, whichever illustration you prefer. The thing is, whether you've been in church or not, no matter 
whether you consider yourself a spiritual person or not, you've probably heard it at some point. And likely in the King James. I bet that was running through your head even as the scripture was being read today. I, I was tempted to have it read in the King James simply for the, same, for the simple reason of why we say the Lord's Prayer in the King James because it's how people have heard it growing up. But I think our translation offers enough for us today. And there's good reason why it's so familiar to so many people. It's a wonderful psalm. It's perhaps been mostly used at funerals or at the bedside of the dying because of the traditional translation referring to the valley of the shadow of death. And that's certainly appropriate to have it in those contexts, but it is so much more robust. Overall, it presents a beautiful picture of our journey with God. And it is a wonderful and deep, classic expression of trust in the living God. With that, let's jump in. Start with the very beginning. Verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd. And I think it's worth pausing right there. You may have heard me say this before, but I think it's worth recognizing, especially in the Psalms. When you see the Lord in all caps, the author is writing the name of God. He's naming his God. He's naming who his shepherd is in a context where shepherd was used for monarchs, for other gods with a small g. In that context, this author is saying, the Lord is my shepherd. It was a name considered too holy to be pronounced by the Israelites. And so even to this day, our Jewish neighbors, when they get to the the name, if reading in Hebrew, they'll say Adonai, which means Lord, which is why our translators write it in all caps. And that's what he's saying. The Lord God, the living God, maker of heaven and earth, that is who my shepherd is. That's my provider. That's my protector. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. All my needs are met. This theme pops up continually throughout the Psalms. Psalm 34.10 states it even more blatantly when it says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 84.11 says, no good thing does he, the Lord, withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And then the author paints this wonderful picture of what this shepherd does as he leads our psalmist to vibrant and life-giving places, green pastures to feed, still waters to refresh his soul. And there's this image of the shepherd guiding the sheep along a journey. And verse 3 continues that he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. In our wisdom literature and our scriptures, most notably the book of Proverbs, speak of contrasting paths in life. Wisdom and foolishness, righteousness and wickedness, and the right path is always the one the Lord leads to. That's the best place for us to be, and so our shepherd is both provider and protector and also guide, taking us to where we need to be. And then there's this shift when we get to verse 4. 
And if you know anything about this psalm, it's verses 1 and 4. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again in the King James. Verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We often err, or rather we get frustrated in our spiritual lives when we identify God and God's presence with the beginning of the psalm and the end of it, and we forget verse 4, right smack in the middle of it. And it's a very important verse because it tells us that our shepherd is who he is and does what he does even in the midst of difficulty. Not simply in the absence of it. It begins saying, even though I walk through the darkest valley. And that phrase, darkest valley, it's, as one person put it, it's, the effect is the shadowiest of shadowy places. It's a dark place. And yet, I will fear no evil. The author teaches us first to place our trust in who our shepherd is by naming our our shepherd, recognizing our shepherd as the Lord God, the living God, and then moves on to recognize our trust in the darkest valley, in the hard times. The psalm does not say the Lord is my shepherd and therefore I will not walk through the darkest valley. It says even though. It could just as easily say when. Many of you know the season he's talking about very well. The dark places, maybe where even our own life is threatened where disease strikes us and we're not sure if we can be cured, where we experience loss not knowing if we can know restoration, where we mourn not knowing if we can be comforted. The psalm testifies to the reality of these places, and the rest of the book of Psalms is far too candid, and scripture for that matter, is far too candid about these places for us to overlook them. This psalm tells us that these places are very real. However, I will fear no evil. Regardless of the realities of these places, the psalmist says, I will not be afraid of any evil that is going to come my way. A lot of seasons in life I read this and ask, how? How is that possible? How is it that he is so defiant to these seasons, to the uncertainties, to the evils that seem to pop up at random in our lives? He's not being dismissive toward them. It's easy for us to dismiss the weight of these places, to try to rationalize them to ourselves, particularly if we haven't been there in a while or if life is good. But the Bible's very honest with us about life being hard, life being messy, life being painful, and at times tragic 
How is it that he says, I will fear no evil? He tells us. Rather, he tells the Lord. He switches to addressing the Lord directly. He says, for you are with me. Perhaps the most fundamental promise in Scripture is the Lord telling us that he is with us. And our author says, because of your presence, I will not be afraid. It's tempting to give people in these dark places, or even ourselves in these dark places, simple answers that may do more harm than good. But often, the only answer I know, the best answer I know, to any of those dark places is the presence of God at an experiential level. God's presence has a way of meeting us in our dark places and often overshadowing them. If you recall, even Job, who lost possessions and family, questions God throughout the book, name, the, throughout the book that is his namesake. And his questions stop when God shows up. That's why in Philippians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul speaks of the peace that transcends understanding when we present our request to God. It transcends understanding because to everyone else outside of that connection, it doesn't make sense. Why not be afraid? Why not worry? Why not be anxious? For you are with me. And your rod and staff, they comfort me. Our author sees the Lord continuing to shepherd in these places. And it's arguable that the Lord's reality as shepherd is much more real and tangible in the darkest valley. He talks about the rod and the staff, the crook that was used for guiding the sheep, for protecting them. That's his comfort. It's in the dark places that he experiences the comfort most directly. It's an important imagery. Important enough that we worked it into our architecture, as somebody pointed out to me. These arches in our window, the half arch on the glass in the office with the cross over it, this right here, it's a reference to our shepherd's crook, reminding us who our shepherd is. And because of this reality, because God is shepherding me, because I know he is with me, I will not fear any evil. That's where that defiance comes from. And then the author moves on to tell more of what the Lord does. Speaking of him as gracious host, there's this image of anointing him with oil. A gesture refreshing a weary traveler, wiping away the dust and grime. There's a meal prepared for our author, and his cup is overflowing. And it's a picture of intimacy with God, as, as eating together illustrates. It's the friendship that our Savior invites us into. In Revelation 3.20, when he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. And just as confidence is expressed in the darkest valley, 
This place where the Lord is acting as host, showing his hospitality to our author, is in the presence of his enemies. Even in the midst of being harassed. If you think about David, who was associated with this psalm, or who this psalm is attributed to, if you recall his story, he knew a thing or two about enemies, having had to run for his life on more than one occasion. For us, any opposition may be seen as an enemy, anything that might oppose our connection with God. Maybe it's those dark places. Maybe it's other humans seeking to do us wrong. Maybe even scheming behind our backs. Or in an even greater sense, the Bible testifies to us having a spiritual enemy. But God's friendship, God's blessing meets us even in the midst of it as a testimony to others of who he is. Even our enemies. Finally, the psalm teaches us to let this trust that we have give us hope. It reads, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The reality of the Lord being shepherd results in a wonderful hope. The psalm speaks of God's goodness and love, and even the word love is very robust in the language. It's love, it's faithfulness, it's kindness, it's grace, even mercy, as other translations would put it. And these things are following the psalmist all the days of his life. A couple of commentators pointed out, the thrust of following is actually a little weak. It's more of a pursuit. God's grace, God's love, God's mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And the final line speaks of dwelling in the house of the Lord, referencing the temple where God's presence is. And the language is more closely to him desiring this hope for his entire life, but ultimately what he's hoping for is God's presence. That's his hope, being in the presence of God. And from our perspective, we can recognize the reality of living in God's presence both now and being in his presence in the reality of eternal life. And so the psalm ends calling us to the ultimate hope of being with God's self for always, now and forever. Jesus, our Savior, rightly tells us that he is our good shepherd. When he tells us in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And a little farther down in verse 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Because Jesus is our good shepherd, Because he laid down his life for us, 
we have access to God. We are invited into an intimate friendship with him. I read someone who recognized that we can even be caterers at this table that the Lord prepares before us. Sharing God's blessings with those that might be going through the darkest valley or who might be harassed by their enemies. So this is both a reality that we get to experience for ourselves as we follow Jesus and that we get to be a part of introducing others to as well. Our good shepherd told us before he ascended in Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the foundation of our trust and hope in God. That he is with us no matter what comes our way. The reality of knowing God intimately gives us hope in this life and in the life to come. It's the reality in which we place our trust whether we are in lush pastures or whether we are in dark valleys. Whether we are at peace or whether we're harassed by our enemies. We recognize that God is with us now and that we will get to dwell with him forever.